0: Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinThegov.com or visiting this episode's description.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call ClickGranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done
0: Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly Pop of Politics is designed to share action items, resources and quick links to specific engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.
2: Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Girl Me of the Podcast. And this one is, like, pretty epic because this intro is being recorded while Maddie is literally in the state of New York, so... I'm
2: actually just two blocks away. Like,
0: literally. I could throw something at you and probably, like, hit that building. Like, not to say that I'm a baseball star, but, like, also, I could I
1: can't
2: imagine that for you.
0: Well, after I literally think I blew my back out at break bar, you might be right. (laughs) And for anyone in New York that's like, let me find a new activity. I quasi recommend this and I quasi don't. But there's this bar where you like literally can go and break shit. And it's like super fun. Like no one, I mean, everyone should go to therapy, but like also go to this. And you just, you put on music and with your friends, you just can like break a bunch
2: of stuff. But I've heard of this and I really want to do that. It was. I, maybe so I'll do that fun. this
0: week. Like, highly recommend. Snack. I feel like she would like it too. Like, it oh, is. 100%. So great. Just like absolutely stretch after because you definitely use muscles that you haven't used since like.
2: Oh, I will be I so sore. Know.
0: Like, I it can't. Know. You saw me. I can't move. I'm like
2: literally a breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, for everyone being like, okay, what are you guys talking about? What's going on? Maddie's in New York City. Because we got work to do, first of all. But second of all, we have an event Mm -hmm.
1: this weekend
2: in Brooklyn at 2 p.m. Eastern. (laughs) (laughs) And tickets are available at the link in our episode description. So go check it out. We're going to be drinking. We're going to be hearing from some amazing young women candidates and it's just going to be a time. There's going to be a, ma- a lot of amazing people there. If you're looking to network in the political space, that's an amazing place to do that as well. So, come through. Go get your tickets. And Go also, get your tickets.
0: Like if you are like, "Hey, like I love a good merch moment." Then this is definitely a good one for you because we are we're going to have some amazing gift bags courtesy of Social Goods and Prima. So like you don't you don't want to miss those like you absolutely don't and you also don't want to miss an opportunity to take a shot with us so
2: if I'm not a shot girl so yeah I really if am I going were to take this. a shot on Saturday there would only be one shot taken so if that's a thing then you better make it before Maddie takes her shot because she won't be doing it more than once promise you that promise and
0: it definitely and it'll, won't be
2: tequila and it, it definitely not, honestly won't be any mm-hmm. hard liquor it'll be a shooter. What's I can't do her. It's like it's like a shot, but they mix in like some lemon juice, so it's not like just straight like vodka. It's just oh. it's easier down the hatch. I highly suggest it. Highly oh. suggest. Like a kamikaze is like vodka and like lemon and or lime juice i'm pretty sure definitely life-changing for me because i'm not i can't do shots but anyways today's episode (laughs) we're in new york right now but today's episode is actually california centric Mm -hmm. in fact we are talking today to my state senator senator scott weiner and he's from san francisco and we're talking about the housing crisis in california we're talking about homelessness chronic homelessness all the things i and i think a lot of californians find particularly relevant and interesting because it's everywhere and it's a very 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 important topic to cover so we're super excited to have senator Weiner on today so you know without further ado here he is well, we're super excited to have you on. You are actually my state rep, super excited, but can you first, before we get into the topics today, we really want to learn a little bit about you and your background and how you got into politics.
1: Uh, sure, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, It was a, I would say, a multi-decade uh, journey. My I grew up in southern New Jersey, near Philadelphia, and my, my parents were always politically aware, but not, not politically involved and no one in my family was ever politically involved and when I was a teenager I, I still don't know why I, I started interning for my member of congress and then started volunteering on some local campaigns and so that was sort of my first random entry into politics and it continued in college in North Carolina where I Helped to found our college democratic club. And then when I got to law school, I decided I really didn't want to do formal politics. I just wanted to do LGBT community work. And so that was my focus. And that continued to be my focus when I moved to San Francisco. I didn't want to do politics, just wanted to do LGBT community work when I wasn't working as a lawyer. But then I started to get drawn back into politics. I knew someone who got appointed to fill a vacancy on the board of supervisors. So I volunteered on his campaign, just started to get involved in other ways, and ultimately sort of got pulled back in and ran for our our county Democratic Party committee, and it just sort of escalated from there, and the intersection of my LGBTQ work and Democratic Party work, and ultimately ran for the Board of Supervisors, and then for the State Senate. So it was a very gradual, very, very long-term process for me.
0: Yeah, a little bit of this a little bit of that and speaking of state senate which is the position that you are in now you represent california's district 11 aka shout out maddie for living there a little moment there we love it what exactly besides maddie what is like the lay of the land What's the demographic can you for our listeners that aren't maybe from the area illustrate what the district sort of encompasses
1: sure absolutely and i should just add on the last question because I, I think I left the answer a little bit incomplete, you know, for me being in formal politics, it, it's a manifestation of community work. It's just a different way of, of delivering for the community. Elected office isn't the only way to do it, but it's, yeah. there's one way to do it. In terms of the district. So in California, our state legislative districts are huge. There are states where, you know, a state legislative district might have 20, 30, 40,000 people or even less um, in California, we have 40 state senators, 80 assembly members. and so each state Senate district has approximately a million people and oh assembly district, half a million. So a state Senate district in California is larger than a congressional uh, district. It's, it's just a huge area. So I represent all of San Francisco and then I' part of northern San Mateo County, which is the county directly to the south of San Francisco. So it was a big leap for me. I represented 75,000 people on the Board of Supervisors. Now I represent a million. And it's a a huge district. It's a very diverse district with people from every community, a huge API community, a a good sized Latino uh, community. Unfortunately, a, a smaller Black community because Black people have been, unfortunately, our Black community has been shrinking in San Francisco for 40 years but it's actually it's, it's an amazing community and a lot of very very engaged people here people vote here people pay attention here people know who their state representatives are which is not true everywhere and mm-hmm. people have strong opinions about what we should or should be doing
2: totally um <laughs> I'm just kidding uh, well you do a lot of work on the housing front which is a very pertinent topic here in california and so we're gonna dive into that today and we kind of want to start with just like basic questions about it to get a like good understanding going into this conversation for those who aren't as aware of what's going on here in california regarding housing and a housing crisis so can you kind of explain for our first i have a stupid question in our i have a stupid question segment um what is housing crisis
1: sure well in California I mean, put very simply we don't have enough housing <laughs> for everyone who needs it and it's been a result of about it used to be in California up until really the 70s we did it the old-fashioned way the way that humanity has done it from the beginning of time that as your population grows as people come in you build more housing you build more homes for the people who need it and you have a a lot of growth, you build a lot more housing. And we did that in California. If you look back in, in, you know, in the 50s and 60s, um, when we were a much smaller state of like 10 million people, we were building upwards of 250,000 to 330,000 new homes every year. And you fast forward to today, when we're a state of 40 million people, and we build less, um, than fewer than 100,000 homes per year. So in the last 50 plus years, we've almost tripled our population, really about tripled our population, but our housing production has gone down by about two thirds. And that wasn't just random. It was because starting in the 70s and the 80s, California and California cities decided that it really was just was not important to build housing, that it was not a priority, that it was more important to keep communities exactly the way they are It was more important to protect single family homes with front and backyards and pools. It was more important to have plenty of park for people. It was more important to maintain views. All of these things were more important than having enough homes for people who need them. And it's not a coincidence that the modern rent control movement in California started in the 1970s, which was exactly when we stopped building housing. Uh, Mm. So you stopped building housing, you make housing more scarce and more expensive, and people start getting squeezed, renters and people who want to own a home. So because of all of the policies that we've adopted about really restricted zoning, where we basically banned multi-unit apartment buildings in a large majority of California, because we made it so hard to get any housing approved, whether it's low-income housing, market-rate housing, it can take years and years, we now have a multi-million home shortage, somewhere between one and a half and three and a half million, depending on what study you look at. It's huge, no matter what. And that has exploded the cost of housing and made it impossible for young people and for working families to find housing, forced people to move far away, maybe leave the city entirely or have a two hour commute. It's bad for climate and has increased homelessness, it's increased poverty as people have to pay 70% of their paycheck for housing, it's increased housing overcrowding and we saw the consequences of that during covid when you have 10 12 15 people living in one home it's hard to protect yourself if one person gets infected Uh, so that's the crisis that we're talking about evictions homelessness people not being able to find appropriate housing for their families
0: yeah Mm -hmm. and that i know often is connected in the larger conversation about homelessness in California. I feel like there's never a conversation where like those two terms are not put together, like housing crisis and homelessness. Can you give us sort of a definition of like what that is and how it's connected to the housing crisis?
1: Yeah, and it's really important uh, question because I think a lot of times when people look at, what have a perception of what is homelessness, what they visibly see. And so right. people see people living in tents, people you know sprawled out on the sidewalk. They see a lot of untreated mental health and addiction issues. And yeah. so they sometimes, I think, subconsciously come to the perception that all homeless people are living in tents, have mental health issues, or are using drugs, when that is a min- minority of, of homeless people. And most homeless people, you either don't see at all, or you see them, but they just you don't even realize they're homeless. They're going to work. They're bringing their kids to school, but they just happen to live in a shelter, or they're couch surfing, or they're living in their car, or they're just struggling to have yeah. housing stability. And Sorry, so, are
2: there any numbers are there any numbers like that can be associated with that? So like the numbers of people you see kind of on the street versus the ones you don't see. Is, is there any kind of.
1: Yeah, I think uh, and I, I, the, I the last numbers I saw were maybe about a third of homeless people have mental health mm-hmm. or addiction problems. There have been different studies that have come to different numbers, but either okay. way, a significant percentage of homeless people do not have any mental health or addiction problems. They just can't afford housing, and they probably right. were low-income renters. They lost their apartment. They had nowhere to go. They don't want to move to another state yeah, or, or another area. They, they want to stay in their community. So, so why don't you just move somewhere else? Well, they don't necessarily want to move somewhere else, and they have hope that they will be able to get housing in their community again. And so fundamentally, homelessness is a housing problem, it's, uh, it's, it's because we don't have enough housing, the housing is too expensive. And so it's about solving the fundamental supply-demand problem, as well as investing in housing subsidies, both um, below market rate units, but also, you know, we should be expanding Section 8 and other housing voucher programs to help people make rents. So that, that in and of itself would address a lot of homelessness. For people who have mental health and addiction challenges, obviously, there are uh, above and beyond issues, and that's Mm -hmm. about rebuilding our mental health safety net, helping people be able to live in supportive housing where they're living in the community uh, and have those supportive uh, services.
2: Totally. And are there different, like, levels or, like, tiers to homelessness that people can kind of get a better understanding of? I know there's, like, this conversation of, like, the ones you see on the street versus hidden...
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hardest situation is what we call chronic homeless. People who have been homeless for a long period of time, it's very challenging to successfully transition mm-hmm. folks who have been on the streets for a long time into stable housing. It can be done, for sure, but it takes a lot more intensive work. The, the least challenging are people who are newly homeless. I mean, the least challenging are preventing someone from becoming homeless in the first place, but if someone becomes homeless, if you can quickly transition them back in and rapidly rehouse them um, and avoid them becoming longer term homeless, that is that's going to be the easiest and most cost effective way of uh, making someone no longer homeless. And that's especially true of young people. We have a large youth homeless population in California. People out of foster care, out of the criminal justice system, people running away from home, and two-thirds of California counties don't even have youth-specific homeless services. We're trying, we're making bigger and bigger investments from the state budget specific to youth homelessness. We were able to get $250 million in this year's budget specific for youth um, at-risk youth housing. We have a lot more work to do there because these kids, you know, you have a 16 or 19-year-old who becomes homeless, you want to quickly get them restabilized and avoid them becoming long-term Chronic homeless.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think to your point, there are a lot of solutions or attempts at solutions happening on the legislative front. And one of the bills that we're aware of is the Housing Data Act. Can you give us a little bit of background as to what that is, what its purpose is, how it could potentially sort of help the situation here?
1: Yeah, that's a bill I'm authoring. It's on the governor's desk now. It's Senate Ooh. Bill for it. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed, Senate Bill 477. Right now, cities are required to submit a a data report to the state every year called the Annual Production Report with various data about how much housing they're building, improving, etc. We think that that report is incomplete. And so this SB 477 will require more data on that annual report that they're already submitting, particularly about compliance or or lack of compliance. With state housing laws we have been passing us over the last five six years a series of strong state housing laws and we need to have better data about how they're working and whether there are cities that are uh, not complying and maybe need some extra accountability and so we're hoping the governor will sign this law
2: well you touched on the issue of like kids coming out of foster care and how that is a huge contributor to homelessness and um, a lot of them end up in homelessness. So one in four California foster youth face homelessness after aging out of foster care. And so your bill SB 234 is transition age youth housing program. Can you also give a little synopsis on this bill and what it's really tackling when looking at you know our foster youth facing homelessness?
1: Yeah. So SB 234 was linked to that budget allocation I just mentioned. It was a bill that we introduced working with a coalition of youth homeless nonprofits to allocate $100 million for housing for our most at-risk youth, youth exiting foster care, youth exiting the criminal justice system, and youth who are currently experiencing homelessness. We were able to obtain $250 million in the budget, even more than we had asked for. And so that sort of made the bill itself moot because it was really a budget play. And yeah, we just wanted to get some money. We still have some work to do and help we structure that money, but it was a really big win. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. We love a good W. That is always something to celebrate. In terms of some other legislation also going on, there's SB 57. So for all of y'all that don't know, it's about controlled substances and overdose prevention program, which Sounds simple on the surface, but is definitely more complicated and has definitely gotten some interesting clapbacks from sort of the Republican side of things. Can you give a little bit of like background? to so like, A, what does this really entail and why are people, well, I, what is public, it solving? Republicans are yeah. up in arms about everything, but like, why specifically <laughs> are they like,
1: mm. yeah, so SB 57 will authorize San Francisco, Oakland, and LA to pilot something called safe. Consumption sites. And these are sites that have been in, in existence for decades in, in Europe and uh, Canada and Australia. And what they do is they acknowledge that people are using drugs right now on our streets, on our sidewalks, in front of people's homes and in businesses, in parks, in dumpsters, and in, in really unhealthy, unsanitary unsafe settings, both for the users, but also for the surrounding community. And the idea is these people who are already using in public in our community, let's bring them inside into a setting that's safe and healthy and clean, not visible to you know to the public, where we can make sure they have clean needles, where there are professionals there, where if they have an overdose, it can be reversed, or they can be sent to the ER if need be, and where they can be offered services, including recovery services. And sites, they don't work for everyone, but they are quite successful. About half of the people who use them end up going into recovery. HIV and hepatitis infections go down. Uh, Syringe litter, like dropping syringes on the ground, goes down. Crime in the surrounding area either stays the same or goes down. There are fewer um, trips to the ER, so it takes some pressure off of Our hospitals, and they're just in general a a positive harm reduction intervention that acknowledges the reality of what's happening. So there are Philadelphia actually adopted, authorized one, but the Trump administration sued, and that's been caught up in the courts. We want to authorize them in California. Unfortunately, in 2018, we were able to put that bill on the governor's desk, but Governor Brown vetoed it, and we've been trying to get it back on the Governor Newsom's desk. It's been Just random, ridiculous delay after delay, but um, hopefully next year we'll put it on his desk. And yeah, there's been some backlash from law enforcement and from Republicans that were just trying to like, you know, normalize drug use or create these uh, shooting dens, shooting up dens or whatever they call them. And, you know, it's just these folks are not recognizing the reality that it's happening now we're not creating drug use. We're just saying, hey, do it inside in a safe and clean setting where we can offer you services instead of doing it in front of someone's home or where someone is walking their kids. So hopefully we'll get that done next year.
2: Yeah. Are there any other kind of solutions either maybe you're working on or that are being brainstormed about kind of this group that we talked about, maybe this third of the homeless population who are chronically homeless and suffering from pretty extreme mental health issues and drug abuse. Obviously, there's this that could potentially alleviate some of that. But what are some other solutions for that? Because I know that's like a huge concern for a lot of people in San Francisco, but LA and um, other places that are seeing kind of this really huge problem.
1: Yeah, Uh, we made in the budget this year, we made a $12 billion additional investment in homelessness focused on housing. We have a program called Project. Home key, where we purchase underutilized motels and convert them into housing for homeless it's homeless supportive housing, so it's supportive mental health and other services so we're you know we're we're trying to make those investments to try to get people off the streets and stabilized
0: mm-hmm. and one more question too is. How is that usually measured? Is there a way in which the state of California looks to you know figure out that data? Like is something successful is something sort of in between? Are there any mechanisms at work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges that we've had with a lot of government programs is we don't do a good enough job evaluating them in terms of the data and getting rid of the programs that aren't working and focusing resources on the program that are working. And that has been an ongoing problem. We've seen it in San Francisco becomes very politicized very quickly. And so we need to do a better job of that. I think more is happening in terms of those evaluations, but it's definitely an area where we have a lot more work to do.
2: Yeah. Obviously, you know, these are some bills that you're pushing out on the state level. Is this problem of homelessness, is there things people can do in the community or with their local government that could be more kind of immediately impactful? Like what is kind of local government's role in
1: this? Yeah, I mean, local government plays a critical role. I mean, the state, we provide financial support and grant programs, but really the local government is implementing uh, most of these programs. And so being involved with some of the um, nonprofits that do this work in partnership with city government is a really impactful way of of plugging in and being part of the solution. Mm
0: absolutely well this has been phenomenally eye-opening and I think is the perfect introduction for our listeners to really get in the mix with what's going on in California the homelessness crisis and everything else that is sort of surrounding this issue so cannot thank you enough uh, for coming on and talking with us we hope to have you on again soon this is definitely a conversation that has many layers to it so we'll, we'll need to continue that very soon
1: wonderful thank you so much for having me
0: In a democracy, we all have citizen power. We just need to know how to use it. Yet, if you feel fed up or confused by the U.S. government, you're not alone. Most voters feel powerless, especially when lobbyists and special interest groups seem to control the levers of government more so than the people. But your voice and your vote matter. When you understand how the government actually works, you can have a surprising amount of influence. Citizen Power with Natalia Ramos and Ben Sheehan is a 10-day course signed for free here, aka in that link in our bio, that offers the civics education you missed or you may have forgotten from high school. This is not just about facts and dates. It's about giving you back your power as a citizen to move forward the issues you really care about. By taking this course, you'll learn what should be taught in civics class, but isn't, your rights and powers as a citizen, how you can have the most influence over your elected representatives, real actionable steps you can take to influence policy, and the confidence and conviction to contribute to the future of democracy. You are the CEO of your elected officials, and it's time to make sure your voice is heard. So head to the link in our episode description to start your amazing civics class today. Get the first five days free. Again, head to that link in our episode description and get five days free.
2: All right, guys, do you need stress relief, sleep support, recovery, mood boosters, or even some new incredible skincare? Prima has amazing doctor formulated, clinically validated, and high performance CBD products for the skin, the body, and the mind, you guys, and it comes in so many forms. So we have CBD supplements to bath bombs, body lotions, skincare. I've gotten some serious relief from stress, hangovers, anxiety, even PMS with this stuff. So give it a shot. Prima has recently been selected as one of Sephora's top 10 brands that meet their rigorous clean standards by priding themselves on sustainable farming practices being carbon neutral, 100% clean with strict safety standards, which is also so important to us. So there's also some big news because Prima has launched an app that offers self-care in the palm of your hands and allows you to shop with ease access exclusive content, and much more. So lucky for us, you can enjoy the relief of the best CBD products out there because Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive, limited-time 20% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co, feel better every day. All right, let's get into these top stories of the week. We're talking about Congress and some updates on the debt limit, the spending bills and really what's all the tea that's been happening in Congress as of late. So the House returns to stop a debt limit vote And members of the House returned to Capitol Hill on Tuesday to approve a short-term lift on the debt limit so that the federal government can continue to, quote, fully pay its bills into December. A $480 billion increase in the borrowing ceiling, which was able to clear the Senate on a strict party line vote. And the House will be able to approve it fairly quickly so that Biden can sign into law next week.
0: I do feel like these are some of these concepts that someone could explain to me 10 times over and I understand them in the moment and then I can like five minutes later not be able to explain it
2: I couldn't agree more it's just
0: anyways we'll work on that that can be a New Year's resolution I love it Really thinking ahead. But anyways, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen stated that staving off a default on the country's debts would be exhausted by Monday and that the department would not be able to fully meet the government's financial obligations, which oh, we don't like to see that. And a default would also have an immense effect on global financial markets, which are built on the U.S. debt. In addition to routine government payments to Social Security, disabled veterans, you know, just some important things, active duty military personnel would be put into question and some quotes on the moment. A little, you know, a little commentary. So we have uh, you know, good old House Majority Leader Hoyer over here. Hoyer? Why is that so fun to say? I've never said that out loud. I've never Hoyer. Oh. That, that is, is fun. fun. It's a good one. Wow. I kinda want that last name. That's pretty cool.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, what did what did, <laughs> what did Majority <laughs> Leader Hoyer say? Because everyone's about to click off this podcast right now. If we don't know. Yeah, they're let like, Can out. I cancel
0: you? He's like, it is egregious. He, Oh my God, Samantha. He said, it is egregious that...
2: (laughs) He's like... (laughs) So he was like, we're really relatable. (laughs) So We're really rebranding politics right now. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. It is egregious that our nation
0: has been put in this spot, but we must take immediate action to address the debt limit and ensure that the full faith and credit of the United States remains intact. I mean...
2: Word, dude, word. But, <laughs> but you guys, this debt relief will only be temporary. So, Congress will have to revisit this issue in December, which is when lawmakers will also be attempting to complete the spending bills to avoid a government shutdown. So, <laughs> not feeling too great about this, but no. this basically raises risk for both parties and can cause a huge dent to Biden's first year in office. So actually, Mitch McConnell agreed to help pass the short term increase, but stated he won't do it again. He was one out of eleven Republicans who sided to advance the debt ceiling. And I would like to actually talk about for a quick, 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 quick second. The headline I sent you last week, do you remember? And it was like Which right one? before McConnell agreed. Oh. He it's right before he agreed, mm-hmm. but one of this article came out and it was basically like I have to pull it up. This quote is just the epitome of American politics today. And we just have to take a moment because basically this is the headline. United behind McConnell, GOP plans to block key debt ceiling vote. And the quote says, we're not in the mood to help Democrats. One senator says, so basically they're like willing to just like let, a, you know, economic collapse come through. I don't really feel like siding with Democrats, you know? God forbid they side with Democrats over, like, avoiding a complete economic collapse, you know? I... It's just the epitome of American politics today. But anyways... So McConnell said Democrats will have to handle the next debt limit increase on their own, using the same process they have tried to use to pass Biden's massive social spending and environmental plan. And reconciliation allows legislation to pass the Senate with 51 votes rather than the 60 that is typically required in the 50-50 split Senate. Vice President Kamala Harris gives the Democrats a majority with her tie-breaking vote. So reminder on what reconciliation is there.
0: So this is what Turkey Gobbler. What did I have? Cock- what was my we pretty- haven't said
2: cock block McConnell in a long time
0: we haven't this is honestly i have to retire the turkey gobbler for Cockblock mcconnell here because it is more appropriate but he said your lieutenants like i i can't on capitol hill now have the time they claim they lack to address the debt ceiling through standalone reconciliation and all the tools to do it they cannot invent another crisis and ask for my help
2: yeah so next story by the way we're going to the next story (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you guys are ready, because Texas Governor Abbott has banned private Lord, B- Lord Farquad. I'm so sorry. So Lord Farquad has banned private businesses from issuing coronavirus vaccine mandates. Crazy, but here's the, here's the story. On Monday, Governor Abbott, and Lord Farquad banned an entity in Texas, private businesses included, from mandating COVID vaccines for its workers or customers. So this is an expansion of the previous order prohibiting state governments from doing this and violators will face fines as much as a thousand dollars so basically states
0: that no entity in texas can enforce vaccination against anyone in the state who objects for any reason of personal conscience based on religious belief or for medical reasons including prior recovery from covid 19 which is all according to a little you know news release press release whatever you want to call it from the governor's office And basically, they also say, which just like the whole thing just blows my mind continually. The COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective and our best (laughs) defense against the virus, but should remain voluntary and never forced.
2: (laughs) He like literally had COVID
0: in August. But now he's
2: forcing private businesses like to essentially not be able to enforce what they want to enforce. Like it's just so hypocritical. You're contradicting yourself. I, I can't, I
0: can't, but he had previously banned government vaccine mandates and passport requirements and school districts from requiring masks. And, you know, he also said this, too many Texans have been sidelined from employment opportunities. Too many small business owners have struggled to pay their bills. This must end. It is now <laughs> time to open Texas hundred percent. So basically that's what he's all about in this moment. And so from the other side of things, good old bucket up biden had a comment to this so we're facing a lot of pushback especially from some of the republican governors the governors of florida and texas are doing everything they can to undermine the life-saving requirements that i propose he actually said this in a speech last month but was specifically calling out obviously abbott and ron DeSantis of florida so that's kind of what The sitch was there, but it's still relevant even now and even more so. He also said this is the worst kind of politics because it's putting the lives of citizens of their states, especially children, at risk, and I refuse to give into it, the president said at the time. I kind of think that
2: still holds, but all in all, the fuck? Yeah, I mean, I don't think their numbers are doing too hot. I mean, I think they're better than they were a month ago, but still not necessarily at this point where it's like, yeah, let's just like, not mandate anything so you know there's that on that but moving on to our next story which involves some restrictive abortion laws in texas and kentucky so the biden administration is still urging the courts to step in to suspend the new texas abortion law that has banned most abortions since back in early september and clinics in neighboring states are getting clients from texas as they take long journeys to get proper care and the u.s circuit court of appeals reinstated the nation's most restrictive abortion law after 48 hours where texas abortion providers began to rush to bring in patients again so basically this law bans abortions when cardiac activity is detected which is usually at six weeks which is when most women don't even know that they're pregnant so super restrictive and basically that's why people say it's like banning abortions as a whole
0: and neighboring gop controlled states have begun to move forward with attempting to get some of these same restrictive laws into place so yikes which was kind of not kind of it was exactly their plan so falling into line there so the justice department told the appeals court if texas's scheme is permissible no constitutional right is safe from state sanctioned sabotage of this kind A wording that seemed to be a message to the supreme court the justice department also raised the specter that if allowed to stand legal structure create a, enacting the law could be used to circumvent even the supreme court's rulings in the 2008 and 2010 on gun rights and campaign financing so the court gave the texas attorney general until thursday to respond to the justice department so we'll see what happens there but planned parenthood planned parenthood go uh give them some dollars related to the court in a separate filing monday that numerous stories of texas women have been impacted by the law including one patient who said
2: they were only 12 years old. Like,
0: I... My heart. I literally can't. I literally I know. can't.
2: That's so wild. So we're going to have to see on kind of what happens here and what the Supreme Court's going to do. They're not looking too promising. I'll just... I'm just going to say that. So this fight yeah. for abortion rights and women's health is very much still in the air and is a battle that's going to need to keep going. So definitely, you know, take some action here. Planned Parenthood is a great resource. And... I always love to donate my money there.
0: And then this one's like a little more like technical vibe, but basically Biden has agreed to request from Congress sensitive information on the actions of the other guys, the past guys, aka President, previously President Trump's January 6th little insurrection. But he stated that the information is guarded by executive privilege trump states that he will challenge the request and a legal battle will probably take place for the information let's go for a little battle royale situation in the midst courts stated that basically former presidents are allowed executive privilege in some cases
2: yeah so a law professor at university of virginia go who's basically said that every time a president does something controversial it becomes a building block for future presidents so that's kind of what's happening here. And Biden tested the norm by not blocking the information as presidents enjoy the secrecy of records in their own terms in office for a period of at least five years or longer. And so executive privilege has developed to protect a president's ability to obtain candid counsel from his advisors without the fear of immediate public disclosure and to protect his confidential communications relating to official responsibilities. So can you imagine ever being able to like open that like secret book, like, as president, like, they all get to, like, know all, like, our country's secrets. I mean, I... The the
0: country would be screwed if that were me because I have never (laughs) in the history of my life been able to keep, like, one bit of gossip from anyone. (laughs) So no one put me in that position ever, please, just for the,
2: you know, national security. but executive privilege and some of these secrets do have its limitations. Example, Watergate. So these scandals that are so bad... They do get exposed. or are whistleblowers. But it's just interesting, too, like, that there's this executive privilege that, like, they can be like, oh, mm-hmm. well, God forbid the public knows this. We don't want to, you know, upset the public. But it's like sometimes the public needs to know this shit because mm-hmm. y'all be getting away with too much. Y'all be shady.
0: Anyways, moving on to a good old little commentary moment. So the White House press secretary stated, on these lines, this committee is investigating a dark day in our democracy an attempt to undermine our constitution, democratic processes by the former president, and that context I think is important here too. And then to flip, give a little bit more color to this. So White House counsel Dana Remes stated, Congress is examining an assault on our constitution, democratic institutions provoked and fanned by those sworn to protect them. The constitutional protections of executive privilege should not be used to shield from Congress or from the public, Information that reflects a clear and apparent effort to subvert the Constitution itself, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. And last but not least here, referring to the Presidential Records Act, Orange Man wrote, I hereby make a protective assertion of constitutionally based privilege with respect to all additional records. He said if the committee seeks other information he considers privileged information, I will take all necessary and appropriate steps to defend the office of the presidency. That's how I feel about like anyone trying to show any embarrassing pictures of me at like sleepaway camp. So like word, I got it, but like not
2: the moment. I mean like so he's, correct me if I'm wrong, let me just like make sure I'm getting this right. So he's trying to be like, I have executive privilege, don't investigate January 6th because of my executive privilege, which is basically just avoiding holding him accountable for basically inciting an insurrection on our government. Is that correct? That That is correct. Okay. Okay. I mean, I don't expect anything better from Donald Trump. So I'm just a little shook at this moment, but at the same time, not surprised yeah. whatsoever from this man. But, yeah. like, he's literally out front saying... Hey, I have a lot to hide. Um, executive privilege. Don't don't call me out. Thank you. Which is just amazing that people don't see that. But
0: nonetheless, I guess nonetheless. That, is, that is where we will wrap our top stories for the evening and for the week. But if you guys have any questions, you know where to find us. In the meantime, go get your tickets to Pre-Game on Politics. If you are in the New York area, we will see you at 2 to 4 p.m. Along with some super phenomenal candidates that are running for New York offices. So we cannot wait to see you there. And if you are out of state, this is your moment to ping your New York friends or to, you know, catch up on some of our solid episodes and subscribe. Or DM us and tell us to come to your city. That, yes, that because we are planning some more events
2: and we want to come to where you guys are. So let us know. Yes. And subscribe, rate, and review. Follow us on Instagram. And yeah, that's it for this week. We'll be back fresh and ready to go next week. And see you this weekend, hopefully.